Welcome back to the Vine Church Podcast. Today, we are continuing our sermon series, Seeing Jesus, exploring the first nine chapters of Luke's Gospel. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Heart, and we'd love to have you join us over there. So let's have a look in our Bibles, if we could, into Luke chapter 6 and verse 12. We continue in our series, and we're in Luke chapter 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, today we're looking then at the calling of the apostles. And Zoe and Chloe, I'm afraid your jokes were okay, but I think I might even try to do a little bit better than you. Are you ready for a couple of apostle jokes? Here we go. What motor vehicle was prominently featured in the Bible? The Honda, because the apostles were all in one accord. It's bad. Okay. Jesus and his apostles walk into a restaurant. Jesus, table for 26, please. Hostess, but there's only 13 of you. Jesus, we like to all sit on one side of the table. Okay, okay, well, sorry, but, um, you know, if you like a joke, hang on, because at the end of this message this morning, you're going to see something really funny and amusing as well. But let's just step back and have a look at the, passage we've, uh, the passages we've been looking at in Luke's gospel, because in Luke chapters 5, verse 1 through to 6, 12, which we've just read, this whole section is kind of divided into seven pericopes, seven kind of mini sections, if you like. And there's a pattern to them. The first, the middle and the final section are all about calling people calling people to follow Jesus. And so we begin in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, with Jesus calling his first disciples, Simon, Peter, James, and John, don't be afraid, from now on you will catch men. Which begs the question, well, what kind of fish are we going to catch? And we get the answers in the second and third and fourth little sections there. Jesus is going to call and catch the despised leper, the disabled paralytic, the, the, the disgusting tax collector. Jesus is the doctor who has come not for those who reckon they're healthy, but for those who know that they are sick, for the outsiders. And here in this middle section, we get another calling scene, the calling of Levi or Matthew. But that begs a question. If these are the folk that Jesus is calling, what is the faith that he's calling them into? And in, in sections five and six, we see what kind of faith it is. It is not going to be a Pharisaic rule-keeping type of faith, which isn't really faith at all, but a joyful following of the Son of Man who is Lord of the Sabbath and who has come to bring 
life. And so in those last sections, Jesus is deliberately bringing to a head issues with the fault-finding Pharisees. In the Sabbath day healing of the man with the withered hand, he lays down the gauntlet and says, look, it may be your kind of Sabbath to leave men hungry and disabled, but my kind of Sabbath is different. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's deliberately dismantling and demolishing the rabbinic religion and replacing it with Christian religion, a faith centered on himself. The new wine needs a new wineskin. The bridegroom has come and he's inviting the outsiders to be with him and to feast with him. And so through those early chapters of Luke, we find that whilst Jesus started out as a universally popular teacher, do you remember everyone spoke well of him to start with? He increasingly becomes a Marmite figure. He has his followers and he has his foes. You can stop putting this, I don't know if the screen's still on, Mike, but you can take it off now, that's fine. And so we read in 6 verse 17 of a large crowd of followers, but we also read in 6 11 that the Jewish leaders were incandescent with rage and start to discuss what they might do with Jesus. And so now, in our reading today, the seventh mini-section, we come to a turning point. Like the first, fourth and uh, section, this is another calling scene, only this time, out of a growing crowd of disciples, Jesus calls the 12 apostles. You see, Jesus is at a crisis moment a turning point in his ministry here. We've just been told that the Pharisees are plotting to kill him. The dice is rolled, the trajectory is set, Jesus will die. And this is the turning point. What is Jesus going to do next? One of my favorite books is a book here called Turning Points by the historian and theologian Mark Knoll. And he gives us 12 kind of key moments in church history, which are turning points in the history of the church. And the interesting thing is that almost every time there is a turning point in the life of the church, there it is precipitated by a crisis which becomes an opportunity for the church to reshape itself. So, for example, in AD 70, with the destruction of Jerusalem, which is a terrible event, but nevertheless, it forced the fledgling church to fly its Jewish nest and become a world religion in itself rather than a branch of Judaism. In the third and fourth century, with the Arian heresy, with Arius teaching false uh, teaching about the person of Jesus, the church had to think through what it believed about the person of Jesus. And we get the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, where the, the Nicene Creed finally articulates a biblical definition of Jesus as fully God and fully man. We could go on. Turning points in church history. The French Revolution, the end of Christendom in Europe, but suddenly the church is no longer in 
hand and glove with the state. It's a turning point. Now, Jesus, as he knows that his days are numbered, has reached a turning point in his ministry in Luke. What is he going to do? And the answer, of course, is he prays. And of course, that's a huge theme in Luke's gospel, isn't it? The prayer life of Jesus. I didn't ask Nikki to talk about prayer today, but it's really interesting that that's what she felt led to speak about. Prayer, we find, is a key thing. Whenever Jesus prays, whenever the church pray in Luke and in Acts, things happen. I mean, for example, Jesus is praying at his baptism and there's the voice from heaven. Peter's eyes are open to the truth that Jesus is the Christ just after Jesus has been praying. In Acts, which we must remember is written by Luke and is part two of Luke's kind of account. In Acts, we find in chapter one that the believers always join together constantly in prayer. And shortly thereafter, the day of Pentecost took place in Acts 13, we read of the church in Antioch, and there they are praying and fasting together, and the Holy Spirit tells them to set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work he's called them to. Now, that was a world-changing moment, and it all birthed out of prayer. Now, here in this passage, we find that Jesus goes up onto a mountainside to pray, and he prays all night long. This is the longest recorded prayer session of Jesus. And I love what Spurgeon says about this passage. And I think it's worth quoting. If ever one of women, woman might not have lived without prayer, it was our spotless, perfect Lord. And yet none was ever so, ever so much in supplication as he. Such was his love to his father that he loved much to be in communion with him. Such was his love for his people that he desired to be much in intercession for them. The fact of his eminent prayerfulness of Jesus is a lesson for us. He has given us an example that we might follow in his steps. The time he chose was admirable. admirable. It was the hour of silence when the crowd could not disturb him. The place was also well selected. Those dark and silent hills were a fit oratory for the Son of God. Heaven and earth in midnight stillness heard the groans and sighs of the mysterious being in whom both worlds were blended. The continuance of his pleadings is remarkable. The long watches are not too long. The cold wind did not chill his devotions. The grim darkness did not darken his faith or loneliness check his importunity. We cannot watch with him one hour, but he watched for us whole nights. The occasion of this prayer is notable. It was after his enemies had been enraged. Prayer was his refuge and solace. It was before he sent forth the 12 apostles. Prayer was the gate of his enterprise, the heralds of his new work. Should we not learn from Jesus to resort to special prayer when we are under peculiar trial or contemplate fresh endeavors for the master's glory? Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. 
I was hearing from someone even this week in the church who's just having a bit of a difficult time, kind of housebound a little bit. And they were saying that they want to try and make this a time where they connect with God more in prayer. And they were saying that the prayer meetings we're having are just helping them to do that. Sometimes it's quite hard, isn't it, for us to pray on our own. And so after a long night of prayer, Jesus comes down the mountainside in the morning and he's got the answer. It's time to build a team. Listen up. We need to understand this, you see. Jesus' death was the birth of the church. Through his death, men and women, boys and girls, will be able to turn from their sins, put their faith in Jesus, receive complete forgiveness, be born again, become children of God and members of his family. The church is enabled through Jesus' death. However, excuse me a minute, for the church to continue to grow, to expand, it will need not only Jesus' death, but his delegates to go out, to be sent out into the world, to proclaim the good news, to build the church, which his death enabled. We need his death and we need his delegates to build his church. We need Jesus' sacrifice and we need his servants. Now, here we see the apostles being called. An apostle literally means a sent one. And that's why right now he has to build his team. That team is going to build the church. Now, obviously, there's a significance to the number 12 here. I'm sure that you appreciate that 12 isn't a random number, but it calls to mind the 12 tribes of Israel. And it looks forward to the 12 gates of the new Jerusalem. Jesus is 12, choosing these 12 to show that his church is going to be a new kind of Israel whose membership is going to be based on faith. This is the Israel of God, the church. Now, it's so important that we understand this, right? The church, if it is going to survive and if it is going to thrive, needs people who turn from learners to leaders, from followers to founders. Now, obviously, we need to understand the apostles had a unique role. We don't believe that today you can have capital A apostles that are, have the role that these people are here uniquely given. They laid the foundation, they gave us the scriptures, and that is our foundation, which we always will continue to build upon. However, we can be an apostolic people, a people who are building on that apostolic foundation, a people who serve in his church in our, with our gifting and who are sent out into the world as sent ones from him. Now, at some point, if the church is going to grow, people need to hear the call of God and step up. To not just be consumers, but contributors into building his church. Now, we just love it if you are just coming and receiving 
You are welcome. You're so welcome. And if that's all you ever do, we love you and we love having you with us. You know, we're so privileged that you trust us enough to give your time to worship with us and to listen to us. It's wonderful. But Jesus did not just come to gather a crowd, but to build his church. Do you want to be part of that? Do you want to be part of his church? You know, there is no more significant thing on planet Earth than the church. It is the hope of the world. Why not give yourself to help build his church? Why not give your prayers, your love, your support, yes, your money, your, your abilities to help build the thing that Jesus came to die for? There's no greater thing to be involved with. And these 12 apostles, you know, they left everything and they followed Jesus. Most of them ended up, tradition tells us, dying for their faith. They became missionaries and martyrs. Now, we don't know exactly. There's a lot of tradition around exactly how they all died, and we don't exactly know the details, okay? But we do know, for example, in Acts that James was the first um, uh, 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 martyr, um, and in AD 44, under Herod, he was killed. And we see here that there were missionaries that went out to India and to Armenia, Turkey, all over the place, all over the world. These 12 apostles went and many of them died uh, and were martyred because they put everything into this call to follow Jesus, to be his sent ones, to go out into the world to build his church. Now, the astute amongst you are listening, and some of you might just be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Are we sure that Jesus chose the right guys? I mean, just take a look at the, this list. Uh, just, yeah, it's just back on me, yeah. Just take a look at this list of names. It's, it's an interesting list, isn't it? I mean, it starts with Peter. Peter? It ends with Judas. I mean, I came across a memo, right? This was written by the Jerusalem Management Consultant Firm, all right? And the memo was written to Jesus of Nazareth, okay? It's obviously made up, but just, let's just go with it for a minute. And it's written to Jesus of Nazareth from the Jerusalem Management Consulting Firm. And it says this, Dear Sir, Thank you for submitting the resume of the 12 men that you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken a series of tests, and we've not only run the results through our computer, but we have also conducted an in-depth interview which each, with each of them by our staff, psychologist, and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you will want to study each of them carefully. In our opinion, most, uh, it is our opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, educational, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you are undertaking. They don't, do not have the team concept, 
and we would highly recommend that you continue your search with persons more experienced, higher qualifications, and greater managerial abilities. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and is given to fits of temper. Andrew simply has no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interests above company loyalty and are quite boisterous. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale among the ranks. It is also our duty to inform you that the Better Business Bureau of Greater Jerusalem has received reports on Matthew regarding questionable business practices. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings and both demonstrate attitude problems which would present difficulty in their dealings with the public. However, one of your candidates shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, he has a keen business mind and has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, he's ambitious, he's responsible, and he's not afraid to take the initiative. We recommend Judas Iscariot as the most qualified of your prospective candidates. Sincerely, the Management Jerusalem Consulting Firm. What do you reckon? I mean, let's face it, these 12 apostles are a motley bunch. They lacked understanding, they lacked humility, they lacked faith so often, they often lacked compassion. James and John, do you remember their style of evangelism, the sons of thunder? Hey, Lord, let's call down fire on this town. Great. They lacked power, they often lacked courage and commitment. Remember Peter? As soon as the, tough, the going got tough, he was off. Peter the Rock, the future CEO of the church, cracks under pressure, denies Jesus three times. He's impulsive. Even in act, we find that he has to be um, spoken to about some behavior with relation to the Gentiles. You know, the church was built on fragile, frail, faulty people. One twelfth traitor and a hundred percent coward. But this will not stop God's plan. In fact, this is God's plan. God works through sinful and difficult people. This wasn't a bug in the program. This is the program. Jesus works through weak people. Still today. I mean, you only need to look at the person next to you. Take a look at the person next to you. I mean, you know, turn to the guy next to you and say to them, sorry, I'm sometimes sinful and disappointing. Yeah, you tell them that, all right? Now, now say to them, don't give up on me. God hasn't. All right. A movie that I want to recommend to you guys, it's new out on Netflix, it's called The Mitchells versus the Machines. And a great movie, we watched it the other day as a family, good fun, all right? And what you have, you have this weird family who have somehow got to come together to save the world, all right? And they are a pretty misfit bunch, 
that don't always get on and so on. And at one point there's this quote, and I think it's the mom, I can't remember, says, we are a weird family, but this group of weirdos is the best hope humanity's got. That's right. This group of weirdos, I'm looking at you, you're the best hope that humanity's got because Jesus chooses us, calls us to be involved in his great mission. Folks, don't let the fact that Christians sometimes let you down, put you off being part of his church. When Christians fail, don't be surprised. Find grace, find God, find forgiveness, show forgiveness, and keep connecting. And if you do find a perfect church, don't join it, because it'll stop being perfect the moment you do join it, okay? It's important, though, that you do find a church, and that you choose a church, a type of church where you can throw your lot in, a church that is built and is wanting to try and build on apostolic foundations on the scriptures. But it won't be perfect, but it's important that it has that right foundation for sure. And let me just say it on a personal note quickly. Forgive me, please, if you would, and the elders and my fellow leaders, if we let you down because, you know, that's not an excuse at all. We, we all want to be better. No one's been complaining, but I know, I know that I, I'm sure I have let people down. But we want to get better, but we are still work in progress, just like all of us in the church. And so we find that Jesus calls people who are far from perfect. That it starts with Peter and it ends with Judas Iscariot. Now, surely at this point we have to say Jesus has actually made a mistake. No, he has not. He has just spent a whole night praying about this and he knows the hearts of men. He knows what Judas is like. And this is part of his plan. You see, we saw at the beginning, the Pharisees are plotting to kill Jesus. Now, Jesus is plotting to have himself killed. He's joining in the plot by selecting Judas, who is going to betray him. The Son of Man is going to lay down his life of his own accord. Why? Why? Because... He's going to die for frail, fragile, faulty people like us, like the apostles, but people who he is going to, through his grace, by the power of his spirit, nevertheless use to build the most magnificent thing that will ever be on planet Earth, his church. It's through his grace that we're part of this thing. What a privilege that we can be part of this thing. Don't you want to be part of this thing? I do. I tell you, I want to give everything to it. There's nothing else I want to give than to follow Jesus and build his church that he came to die for. And I'm so grateful that he takes fragile people like us, vessels, weak vessels, 
that have got treasures inside, but we're, we're like earthen vessels, but there's treasures inside, and you know God has got given you and gifted you and in, given you something to bring into this endeavor. I want to encourage you today. We're a bit passive at the moment, but we're going to get active pretty quick. In the next few months, through the rest of this year, things are going to get busy. We're going to get involved. We're going to carry on building. We're going to go for it. We've got a big mission. This isn't in my script, but we've got a big mission for Heart District. We want to see Heart District full of congregations who are proclaiming the gospel and worshiping Jesus. And we want to be a church for the nations. We want to be involved with the nations. That means we need you to be involved. Please don't just be a consumer. Be a contributor. Be a part of what God wants to do in our day, in our time. Let's pray together. Lord, we humbly come before you because we just don't know why you would choose us. We thank you, though, Lord, that it is through your grace that you've plucked us out of the fire, that you've taken hold of us, that you have filled us with your spirit and that you have called us to follow you and to build your church. We thank you for that privilege. We thank you, O oh God, that you're on the, on the move today, that you're doing things in our day. And we just want to right now say, as for me and for my household, we will serve the Lord. We will give ourselves to you. We will follow you wherever you call us. We will do whatever you want us to do. Oh God, we lay ourselves, we surrender ourselves afresh to you this morning. And we say, take us, use us, equip us, commission us, oh God, to do your work through your power, by your grace, in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.